The Old Testament is full of stories. Fascinating, true stories that capture the imagination. Brutal stories of war, revenge, and violence. Tragic stories of betrayal. And endless stories of God's power, His love, and His faithfulness. And every story points to a promise. A Savior is coming. Things will be put right. Don't give up. God gave Isaiah a glimpse of what to wait for. A people walking in darkness see a great light. The war is over. The victory celebration begins. How? A child is born. A son is given. A leader will finally bring peace and justice forever. And so the waiting began. The very first church that I served, uh, I started in Massachusetts. Uh, if you've never been to New England, it is an absolutely gorgeous area of the country. Uh, there are hilly areas, which are beautiful, uh, with a few mountains thrown in between there. It makes it just gorgeous. There is the uh, old colonial architecture wherever you, uh, wherever you drive, which is just wonderful to see. Um, there is the history of our nation. This is where we first arrived. This is where we came in as our country began. When I would leave from uh, Massachusetts to go home to see my parents, it would always take me through a particular route and I'd go through several different cities, little towns actually. And there was one town in particular that I remember because if it was nothing, it was very, very typical New England. Uh, as you drove through the town square, or the common as they would call it in Massachusetts, there was just a fence right along the entire thing, kind of like a white picket fence along the whole thing. And at Christmas time, they would have uh, the greenery out there. They would have the little red bows. They had the beautiful white lights there and in the background on some of the uh, town uh, buildings and so on. And one of these occasions, while I was driving through, on my way to Christmas or on my way back, I happened to drive through at just the right time while it was snowing, and it was just the most beautiful thing that you could see. Now, I mentioned New England uh, and that colonial feel that most of us can kind of put that into our mind. So in just a minute, I'm going to ask you to close your eyes and picture yourself on the streets of a New England town maybe around Boston, and think uh, something like a Christmas carol. So most of us have that in our mind. Christmas carol was in London, but I want you to think of a place in New England. Now, two things about this little visualization technique. 
Number one, I have not turned into some flaky liberal that's going to use visualization techniques to move us forward in our faith. You'll see why I'm doing that in a minute. But the second thing, since I'm asking all of you to close your eyes, you have to promise me that you're going to open them again. I don't want anybody falling asleep already. So go ahead and close your eyes, and here's some of the things that I want you to picture in your mind's eye. Imagine as you're walking down the street, you're going to be headed toward church, and you see some of the decorations that have already been set out for the Christmas season. You look at the street lamps, they have fresh greens hanging from them high above. As you walk past some of the buildings, you even see candles in the window marking the birth of our Savior. Picture in your mind the horse-drawn carriage that you might see going down the street. You can hear that infamous clippity-clop of the horse's hooves on the cobblestone streets. As you pass by the bakery, you can smell the wonderful aromas that were left over from the night before. As you're walking down the street, the bells of the church are calling out to remind everyone of the birth of our Savior and calling everyone together for worship. As you're walking to church for Christmas to celebrate the birth of Jesus, you see a man walking toward you. Now, the man's around 60 years old. He's of average height and weight for a man his age. He has a mostly white beard, grown out a little bit, but kind of an average length for the, that time period. And due to your perceptive nature, you notice something about this man. He seems deeply saddened and maybe has this little bit of twinge of concern. You wonder to yourself, what events, what things has taken place in this man's life that on this Christmas day he is struggling so much with this sadness? You may open your eyes. With that picture in mind, I would like to give you just a little bit of backstory on this particular man that you've seen on the street. Now, for our purposes today, uh, we're going to call this man Hank because, in my mind's eye, he looks like a Hank. And I'm the one telling the story, so Hank it is. Now, Hank had been in America, his family had been in America for a few generations. He had a grandfather that actually fought in the Revolutionary War. Hank himself was a child prodigy. Uh, he was in school at the age of three. He was reading classical literature and writing his own stories by age six. Uh, he graduated from college at age 19. By the time he was 30, he was considered a scholar by most people in America. This man was fluent in eight languages, and he knew parts of four or five more languages. Because of his linguistic skills, Hank was offered a position to teach at Harvard University, and he was teaching modern languages. By all accounts, Hank's life was going amazingly well. He had just married a childhood friend in 1831. Her name was Mary. So things are looking up for him. He's got wonderful things going on in his personal life, wonderful things going on in his professional life. But tragedy was about to strike. Mary passed away from a miscarriage in her sixth month of pregnancy. It took Hank seven years or so 
of pain and struggle and tears to be able to recover enough to the place where love would find him again. Things began to look up for Hank. He had a new wife by his side, and eventually in time he wound up with six children. Uh, his career was going well, even finding notoriety with some of his writings all the way back out into across the pond at Europe. Just as Hank was settling into the joys of life, tragedy struck a second time. He was laying down for a nap when he woke up to an absolutely horrible sight. His wife's dress had accidentally caught on fire. And Hank tried desperately to extinguish the flames. First grabbed a rug and tried to get the flames out, and when that didn't work, he threw his body on her to try and get those flames extinguished. It left him scarred for the rest of his life. And unfortunately, the next day, his wife passed away. Before he could really recover from that, the Civil War began. And his oldest son joined in the Civil War, even against his father's wishes. Now, Hank absolutely hated the Civil War. It was tearing apart this country that his family helped to build. But Hank was a strong believer in God's ability to work on earth. And so he pleaded with God, please, Lord, end this war. Why is this taking place? We want to see this war end. In 1830, or excuse me, 1863, during his uh, son's time in the military, his son contracted typhoid and was down for several months. But he was able to recover, but that same year, uh, his son got an injury in battle in December. Hank got the news that his son had been injured, and it was a pretty serious injury. The, uh, the bullet had grazed his spine, and if it had been less than an inch, even closer, he would have been paralyzed. The doctors knew it was serious, but they did believe that with time, he would recover. This is the man that you passed on the street. He is obviously in desperate need of hope. He is a twice-widowed father of six, who has one son who is almost just paralyzed in a war that he absolutely detests. His world has become a very dark place, void of hope and void of peace. Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as men rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke and burdens, uh, excuse me, that burdened them, and the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fueled for the fire. For unto us is born, or excuse me, for unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, 
the mighty God, the everlasting Father, and the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. These are the words from the prophet Isaiah. And they contain a few different themes, but I want to zero in on one theme in particular, and that is the theme of promise. In this text, we're going to see a promise made, we're going to see the promise explained, and then we're going to see the promise fulfilled. So in verses 1 and 2, we see this promise made. God is giving them this wonderful promise, something to be looking forward to. Now, much like Hank, the nation of Israel was in a very, very dark place. Unlike Hank, the nation of Israel and their darkness was brought on by themselves rather than circumstances. Now, I do not have time to go through all of the details that brought them into this darkness because we'd be here for an awful long time. They made some foolish decisions. But allow me to give you what was taking place in context at that time when Isaiah was writing. Uh, Israel had split into two kingdoms. There was the kingdom in the north, which was still called Israel. There was the kingdom in the south, which was called Judah. Now, the kingdom in the north, Israel, never had a good king. Uh, with the exception of one person, every single one of those kings, the Bible records that they did evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, Judah's quality of kings, the kingdom to the south, uh, was basically a roller coaster ride. It was up and down. They'd have an evil king that would take them way down. They'd have a good king that would bring them back. They'd have an evil king, and up and down they went. At the time that Isaiah is writing, Ahaz is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom. Ahaz is not a good king. Let me give you some idea about what Ahaz is up to. He sacrificed his own son. He offered sacrifices to pagan gods. And according to 2 Kings chapter 16, he engaged in the detestable practices of the nations that the Lord had driven out of Israel. Now, I don't know exactly what that means, but it does not sound good to me. Uh, it was a very dark time for Judah and for its leaders. They were charging down this path uh, that was completely leading them away from God. Now, in spite of the warnings from Isaiah, Ahaz would uh, ignore God's word. As a result, Judah was being beaten up on by the nation of Israel and its allies. So Israel's actually coming down into Judah. At one point, they took some of the men from Judah back up into Israel. They took them captive. Uh, Isaiah had to act like the ambassador and went up to Israel and said, this is not right, these are your brothers. Return them, it's not right before God. And God allowed them to return. But Israel and Judah continued to squabble and fight. So Ahaz is trying to figure out, how do I handle this? And Isaiah is telling him, you need to seek God in all of this. And Ahaz says, you know what? I have a better plan. I have a new power that is going to come and help us deal with this. It is a nation that is growing to the north of Israel, and it is called Assyria. The Assyrians 
were evil and wicked. I won't go into all the things about Assyria, but are you getting a feel for how dark a place they are in right now? They are falling apart spiritually. They are being pressured politically and militarily, including this specter of what's becoming a world power coming in to take both of them out eventually. Uh, in fact, that's the point of chapter 8. Chapter 8, Isaiah is warning them and saying, the Assyrians are coming. You need to clean up your act. You need to be seeking God. Now, in the middle of this darkness, God issues a promise, and he says, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetali, but in the future, he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by the way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light, and on those living in the land of the shadow, the light has dawned. God is promising that the Jews not only relief politically and militarily, but he's also promising a greater uh, light than they could have ever imagined. God was referring to both the immediate restoration of Israel, but he was also referring to the ultimate restoration of Israel. God would eventually give Israel back into their land after a time of captivity. But when he says that he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Nephetali, what you need to understand is that is a land in the northern kingdom up high, right next to the land of Assyria. And when all of this started, when Assyria started gaining power, that was the first place in Israel that was really facing judgment from God by the Assyrians coming down. Eventually that area got annexed into the, uh, the nation of Assyria. That's where judgment started. So that is where the light is going to come in to break the darkness. John chapter 4, verses 12 through 16 say this. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee, leaving Nazareth. He went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulun and Naphtali. To fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, the Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen the great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, light has dawned. So Isaiah, back in Isaiah chapter 9, is talking as if these things had already taken place because he's already seeing this. It's kind of a now and not yet. We're here but it's actually going to happen. It is true. It is sure. It is your hope. When John quotes these verses from uh, Isaiah, basically he is saying, Jesus just came into this area, and guess what? The light has come. It is Jesus who is now bringing to that first area where there is judgment, Jesus is coming in and bringing the light. Now, in one sense... The uh, oppressor for the Jews had changed over time. From the Isaiah's time, it was the Assyrians. When it was Jesus' time, it was the Romans. But in another real sense, the oppressor never really changed. The real oppressor of the nation of Israel was their problem with sin. And the light that's coming into the world is going to take care of both problems. 
He's going to remove that military problem and he's also going to remove their sin problem. After chapter 8 and that announcement of judgment for the Jews for their unfaithfulness, God is now proclaiming to them that the light is coming into the world and that light's name we know to be Jesus. Now undoubtedly this promise is beginning to fill the nation of Israel with hope. So we see the promise made. Now in verses 3 through 5, we see the promise explained. In these verses, Isaiah is explaining what that light is going to be like. They've been oppressed by military forces. They've had kings that have led them into dark places. But God is promising a new future that is going to bring joy. And it's very important to notice the motivation for their joy in verse 3 says that the people are rejoicing before you, meaning before God. They recognize that God is the one who is doing this. They recognize that God is the one that is bringing joy back to the nation of Israel. And he says, God's people are rejoicing like people at the harvest or men dividing the uh, spoils of war. Now, these are two illustrations, and we might be able to relate to the harvest one, but you could have picked any two illustrations you wanted to stick in there uh, about how we rejoice. So you could have said, it is like a man picking up his brand new car. There's joy in that. It's like having a beautiful, wonderful family, right? Or it's like having a few minutes to get away from that beautiful, wonderful family. <laughs> Whatever it is that brings you joy, you can fill that in for the illustration that Isaiah is using. He's trying to get across the idea that there is joy. They are rejoicing. Then he even gives uh, the reason for rejoicing. God has gone to battle for them and defeated the enemy. And Isaiah uses an illustration of Midian's defeat. So for those of you who are not brushed up on your Jewish history, let me uh, fill you in a little bit. Book of Judges, Gideon is going to fight. He has this large army and he is about to go fight the uh, Midians, Midianites. excuse me. And as they're on the way, God tells Gideon, your army is way too large. He had 32,000 troops with him. And God said, we need to thin this out just a little bit. So here's what you do. Tell everybody who is frightened and afraid and not wanting to really go to war, tell them that it's okay for them to go home. 22,000 men left, which left 10,000 people to fight this war. And God said, wait a second, Gideon, your army is still too large. We need to whittle this down just a little bit more. And there's a reason that God gives. He says, I want everybody to know and understand that it is me who is giving Israel victory, not you guys being able to claim it for yourself. So uh, God gives Gideon one more way of thinning out the army. He says, we're going to go to the river, and for the people, the men who drink out of the river this way, send them home. For the men who drink out of the river this way, that's your army. And on this side, out of the 10,000, 9,700 drank that way, and God said, go home. We don't need you. That leaves 300 on this side. 
So God is having Gideon march into battle with 300 men against the enemy. These 300 men didn't actually even fight the war. They stood around the outside of the camp like God told them to, had their uh, torches that were hidden, and they had their trumpets. And at the appropriate time, they were to break open and allow the torches to shine, and then they were to blow their trumpets. And when they did, the enemy got so confused that they started fighting with each other and basically slaughtered themselves. Now, God fought battle for them. They never had to lift a finger, and that was God's entire point. And that is what the point is that Isaiah is making here. Just like in the day of the defeat of Midian, that's what it's going to be like. God is the one who is bringing the victory. So the first promise of light in the darkness is coming, and then they explain that God would fight the battle for Israel to rid them of their oppression. So again, Israel's hope is growing. They hear this promise, and then they hear it explained a little bit more that God is the one who's going to do these things on their behalf. The question is, how is this all going to happen? Where is this deliverance coming from? Well, in verses 6 and 7, we find that out. The promise is going to be fulfilled. Now, if you know any good story, every good story has a little bit of a twist. And here's where Isaiah is bringing in the twist. The deliverance is ultimately going to come in the form of a child. It's not going to be a political savior. It's not going to be a military guy. It's going to be a child. Now, they probably weren't disappointed in this because they were used to things like this. Uh, it also gave them something to look forward to. They were used to it because some of the kings that they had were actually children. So they were a little bit, a little more used to this than we might be. But um, some people have, in the past, tried to identify who this child was. And most commonly, they say it was Hezekiah. Hezekiah was a king in the south, and he was a good king. And so they point to him and say, this is the guy who brought all of this about. Now, there's problems with timing on all of that, but there's also problems with what these verses really say about who this child is going to be. Um, the problem is the description does not fit who this kid is as he's described. So the first part of verse 6 basically sounds like it could be the kid next door. A child is born. Kid next door. A son is given. All right, we know he's going to be a male child. The government is going to be on his shoulders. Okay, eventually he's going to be the leader. That could be the child that's growing up next door to you right now. Then we see in the phrase, this is a little bit of a side, but for us on this side of the cross, we see in the phrase, a son is given, and we think ahead to who Jesus is in verses like John 3.16. God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. We recognize that from our side of the cross. Isaiah probably did not see that coming. But in the first part of verse 6, rather than the yoke of oppression that brought, the bad kings brought and that the, uh, the foreign powers are going to bring, the yoke is going to be removed and the government is going to rest on this child's shoulders. But the second part of verse 6 uh, 
confirms that this is not going to be any normal kid, any ordinary child. These titles are used for earthly, excuse me, are not used for earthly kings. Even if that king was incredibly arrogant, they did not ever take on these particular titles. Uh, D.A. Carson puts it this way, unlike many of the Davidic kings, especially Ahaz, he would rule with justice and righteousness. All of these names are satisfactorily resolved only in Jesus Christ, the true Emmanuel. Now, I want you to think on some of the beauty of these names to be applied to this particular child. First name is Wonderful Counselor. Now, oftentimes when we think of the word wonderful, we think of things like beautiful or special or spectacular. And there's a little bit of that mixed in, but the Bible, the way it describes the word wonderful is a little different. Its description, its definition is more like singularly unique, exceptional, something that far exceeds the norms. Now, why do you think that miracles are referred to sometimes as signs and wonders? They are things that are singularly unique, that exceed the norms. They are exceptional. And Christ certainly fits all of those descriptions. But it's not just that he is wonderful, that he is the wonderful counselor. Paul puts it this way, Colossians chapter 2. My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. If we are seeking wisdom, we are seeking the wonderful counselor. Uh, practically speaking, how do you need the wonderful counselor's guidance? What is it that Christ may have answers for for you that you need help with? James tells us we do not have because we do not ask. Have you asked God for direction for whatever is troubling you? Second name, Mighty God. Now, this name is a sure sign that this child is not your average kid. You don't t call an average child Mighty God. That would be a little different. Uh, it leaves zero doubt that this child is divine. In fact, Isaiah chapter 10, verse 21, gives that same name and applies it directly to God. So when you put those two together, there's an implication there that is undeniable, that this child is directly related to who God is. He is divine. He is singularly unique and different. So our friend that we passed on the street, Hank, he was convinced of the Lord's power to work on earth, but he was getting hung up on what he saw taking place on earth. He saw the civil war raging on around him, and he was saying, yes, I believe in what God can do. I believe in his mighty power, but I am struggling from a practical standpoint because I don't see it. And there's a lot of us who may be in that same situation that we go, 
man, I understand, I believe in God's power, I trust in that, but I'm not seeing it take place in my life right now. Everything seems out of control. It seems like God is not listening to me about these things that I need his power to be able to fix. Whether they be financial things, whether they be relational things, whether they be health concerns, whether they be because we've lost someone significant to us and we look at him and go, where's the power? Why is it not there? Why did this not get applied to me? And so from a practical standpoint, I ask you if you are in those circumstances, if that is part of where you're at today, because the hope is being offered to us in this child. But it goes on and it says that he is the everlasting father. Uh, It's a little odd to call a child father, but... Everlasting is certainly being applied to Jesus because it's talking about his pre-existence before he ever came to earth, before earth was even created, he existed. But it is also referring to his reign, his rule, that he's going to be reigning and ruling in justice from that time and forever. But why would you call a kid father? Most likely he is emphasizing his care and compassion just like a father would have. And again, I ask you to dwell on that name for just a little bit today. In what ways have you seen God's compassion like a father in your life? In what ways might you need God's compassion as a father in your life today? That final name is the Prince of Peace. And it really is a description of his character and of the reign that he will have. The final verse goes on to describe that reign. His rule will bring peace. His rule is on David's throne. So David's throne is the one that everybody recognizes that is the one who has the right to rule the nation of Israel. That's why it's included in there, so that we know that this child has the right to rule. His reign is going to be a reign characterized by justice and righteousness, as opposed to Ahaz, who's in charge right now, and many of the other kings of Israel that have failed them. And his reign is never going to end. Once it begins, it's never going to stop. This, all of this, when you put all of this together, is undoubtedly filling the nation of Israel with hope in spite of the fact that they had a king that was doing evil in God's eyes, in spite of the fact that that king refused to listen to God and to seek after him, in spite of the fact that the northern kingdom is beating up on the southern kingdom, in spite of the fact that the Assyrians were soon going to be coming and basically whooping up on everybody, in spite of the fact of all this darkness that you can possibly dream up that's taking place in Israel, God gives them a ray of hope. A glimpse at a brighter future because of this wonderful promise that is found in this child, which we on this side of the cross know is Jesus Christ. A ray of hope is what was found by Hank on that Christmas morning as you passed him by. It was that morning that he heard the bells of the church begin to ring and he pondered their message. The bells rang out to announce 
that Emmanuel was born. God with us was born. This wonderful counselor, this mighty God, this everlasting father, and here's the big one, this prince of peace as he's staring out at what's not peaceful in his world. He noted the irony of the Prince of Peace, of the message of Christmas, of peace on earth and goodwill toward men that the angels announced to the shepherds. And he's going, where is the peace? The bells that Christmas morning set Hank to writing. And as he wrote, he wrote a poem. And most of us know that poem. Most of us know a lot of his poems. You can probably finish this one. Listen, my child, and you will hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Paul Revere. <gasps> Hank's full name, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. And that Christmas morning is the morning that gave him inspiration to write the poem that was later set to music entitled, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. While the poem, then song, uh, it begins a little on the somber side. It ends with these incredible words. Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. Longfellow obviously knew of this prophecy in Isaiah 9. He obviously knew of the uh, announcement to the shepherds. And he obviously knew Psalm 121 when he says, God is not dead. He recognized all of these things. And his hope began to return to him. And he realized that the gift given that day is truly the birth of the Savior. Now, while the darkness of Longfellow and the darkness of the Israelites was deep and desperate, each of them recovered because of the promise. Each of them recovered because of Jesus. The Israelites looked ahead at the promise and going, this is going to happen. God has promised this to us and we are going to experience it. Longfellow looked back at it and said, Jesus came, he is the Prince of Peace and I don't know when it's gonna happen, but peace is going to take place and I take comfort in the fact that Jesus has been sent. Again, I wonder if there's anybody here who has a sense of darkness in their life at the moment. And regardless where that darkness has come from, if you have that sense of darkness and you need that light of the hope of Jesus, some of you may need it to establish a relationship with Jesus in the first place. You are now beginning to come to the place where you understand that Jesus came to this earth to die on a cross for your sins and that you have no hope apart from what Jesus has done. When he died on that cross, he took care of the bill. There's nothing you need to do other than trust that. Trust that Jesus took care of that bill. And when you do, when you fully put your trust in that, that is when you are a Christian. That is when you are a follower of Christ. So some of you may be having issues. You may be having family issues, health issues, job, finances, relationships, addictions, whatever that issue may be that is bringing darkness into your life. I hope that you are realizing today that Christ is the only one who can bring hope to your life. But in whatever the case may be, here's what's going to happen. I will be around after church today. 
you are welcome to come to me, and I am happy to talk and happy to pray with you. But we're also going to have some deacons back in the deacons corner over there. That signs over there. That's where a few of them will be. We're going to have deacons behind the welcome center table. If you need some prayer, if you need to talk to somebody, you can go in any of these directions. And I'm sure you can just talk to some people that you know in church as well. And they would be happy to pray with you. But we want to offer this to you because this is the season of hope. Christ is the one that we put our hope and our faith and our trust in. So if you are feeling like there's a sense of darkness in your life, today is a day and we want to give you an opportunity and a place where you can help deal with some of these things. Let me pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for all that you've done for us, for the way that you have brought light into our lives, that you have brought hope to us. Hope is in the person of Jesus. We look back at this prophecy and we understand it so much better. The Israelites, they were hoping for what was coming and they didn't fully understand it, but we on this side do fully understand it. So Lord, we thank you and we praise you for the gift of Jesus Christ and for what he eventually did for us in taking care of one of our issues, the sin problem in our lives. And eventually, Lord, we are going to sit under your reign and your rule forever and ever in a place of peace and love and comfort, all because of this gift that you've given us. Lord, we thank you so much. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.